Hey guys, welcome to the Real Athlete Podcast. My name is Lexi Reed, and I'm a Division I cross-country and track student-athlete, aiming to bring awareness to the untold but very important real stories and insights of real athletes. This podcast features a variety of current and former athletes who openly discuss their experiences both on and off the field. This includes different challenges and obstacles they've dealt with throughout their lives and careers and how they've overcome them. These real conversations about life beyond the athlete identity show that we're all human and more than just athletes. So let's get into it. Okay, hi guys. Welcome back to the podcast. I know it's been a little while since our last episode, but now I'm finally back in Oregon and just started up school again last week. So I've been trying to get back into the swing of things. Um, but the worth, the wait was worth it because we have an amazing guest today on the podcast. His name is Caleb Etter, and he's a fellow Oregon State Beaver. Um, he plays on the men's soccer team, and he has such an incredible story that he's going to share with us today. So I'm excited. I hope you guys are excited. And welcome, Caleb. Thank you so much for coming on today. Hi, thank you so much. Uh, it's a it's an honor to be on your podcast now. All right. Well, to start out, can you just give us a quick intro of who you are and just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm Caleb. Um, I am originally from Reno, Nevada. Uh, that is where I was born and raised. Uh, all my family still lives there. Um, and I am a soccer player here at Oregon State. So this is my senior year. Um, I started out as a freshman here and uh, the last four years have been awesome. So. Sweet. So when, can you just like take us back to like when you started soccer, when you got into that? Like, was that from like a young age or did you play any other sports before getting into soccer or just talk a little bit about that start? Yeah. Uh, so soccer for me, I started playing when I was probably about five, four or five. Uh, my older sister was actually the, the monster on the soccer field, uh, which made me kind of want to step in. Um, but I, also played baseball and I also played basketball growing up. Um, I always enjoyed playing those other two sports, but soccer was always just my passion. Um, something that, you know, was very freeing for me and seeing how I was somewhat decent at it, I decided to just stick with it and now we're here. Sweet. So how did you, like, what was the process of like, kind of like your development through high school and starting to play like on club teams or elite teams and just kind of your journey to getting recognized by D1 programs? Yeah, so uh, a little background about that. When I was pretty young, starting um, in sixth grade, I started playing in California. Uh, so I, I played with what was called a player development program. Um, and it was in Northern California, Sacramento area. Uh, I had a really awesome coach who kind of took me up and uh, kind of showed me uh, a little bit more about, you know, 
the bigger picture of soccer because in Reno, soccer was not always super big. Um, and so despite having a great club team uh, in Reno, uh, I played in California pretty much all growing up until I was a freshman in high school. And so I played on a few club teams down there. Uh, I had played for uh, the Northern California State Pool team. Um, but where my life kind of took a change and um, where I dropped playing all my other sports was when I was a sophomore in high school. Um, I was able to play varsity my freshman year at my high school back in Reno, shout out Galena High School. Um, but I left uh, when I was about 15 and I went out to Minnesota. And so this is a time in my life where I had to really give up, um, you know, basketball mainly. Um, I had probably, I had stopped playing baseball a little bit earlier than that, but uh, I went out to a very small school called Shattuck St. Mary's. Um, Shattuck St. Mary's is basically like a little college prep school. Um, and I got recruited out there uh, to play for what was at the time U15, U U16. Um, it's called the U.S. Soccer Development Academy. Uh, and so I went out there and it was pretty much just like college for high schoolers. So you have, you know, your dorms, you have your campus, um, your dining halls, everything like that. I would train there and ended up graduating there in 2017. So I was there for three years. Was that like a change that you made mostly like to focus on soccer? Yeah. So it was, it was a pretty tough de decision actually. Um, just with how young I was, I uh, wasn't quite sure if I was ready to move away from home yet, but um, you know, it was a, it was a super short notice. I had gone out there for kind of like a little trial um, and I was able to train with the team at the time for three days. And I have tons of family out in Minnesota as well. So I, it was another, you know, time that I could get to spend with them. But after about two, three weeks after I was out there on, on the trial, they called me back only two weeks before school started up and said, Hey, you know, sorry for the late notice, but uh, we'd really like if you came out and, you know, joined our school, joined our team. And so they gave me pretty much, it was an overnight decision that I had to kind of talk to my family about, uh, wow. talk to my friends about. Uh, and, and at the time it was heartbreaking. I was sitting there in my room and I was looking at my dad saying, you know, I'm not sure if I'm ready to move away and be by myself. You know, I'm only so young. Um, but, you know, I, we kind of looked at it and said, this is an opportunity that, you know, not many kids would, you know, maybe get. And so I took that, I took those words and ran with it. And next thing you know, I was out there the week before school started up and, you know, training with the team. Wow, that's crazy. Um, how did you, from there, kind of end up choosing Oregon State as where you wanted to go and continue your soccer career in college yeah so being out in the midwest uh for my fellow oregonians you know it's very dark and gloomy during the winter winter for six months 
um, lots of rain, you know, that kind of similar vibe. Uh, but my biggest decision in wanting to choose Oregon State was just to get kind of out of that area and back closer to home. Um, I had been looking at a few schools out on the East Coast and, you know, not to take anything away from that, but it just didn't feel, you know, like the right places when I came on my visit here. So, um, you know, choosing Oregon State was pretty easy, easy decision for me just because of how much closer it was to home. I had already been away for three years uh, and I was ready to, you know, get get closer and back on the West Coast. Yeah. So how is that kind of transition? Like, I guess you had already been moved away from home for a few years, but how was it kind of going just into college, like your freshman year, kind of transitioning again? Yeah. So interestingly enough, you know, with, with Shattuck being the prep school that it is, we did do a decent amount of our homework online, uh, quizzes online, even a few tests online. Uh, so that kind of technology shift was pretty um, routine for me already. Uh, but, you know, the level was, you know, obviously a little bit challenging just as it is always, uh, but it was relatively smooth. I uh, came in as a pre-business major and uh, I had a lot of other guys in the dorm, soccer players, shout out to Cawthorn, um, all the boys in there. We, you know, were able to study together and, you know, we had a lot of classes together. So it was a pretty good uh, transition, I would say, from the high school setting to college. And what about like sports wise, like how'd your freshman year of soccer go for you? <laughs> uh, it was it was tough. Um, I, I remember my first training, we did a 1v1 drill and coming in as a defender and, uh, you know, got to be a little bit more physical. And I remember getting tossed around a little bit in the 1v1s. Uh, and so from from there on out, I I found a, a love hate relationship with the gym. Um, but no, it was it was super duper fun. Uh, all the guys on the team were were very friendly, welcoming. Um, you know, training sessions were always super fun. Just great guys and coaching staff as well. Uh, but you know, it's always tough coming in as a, as a freshman, you know, trying to earn minutes, uh, uh, trying to earn a spot that, you know, you're respected on the team. Um, but I was finally given a chance uh, uh, on our away trip at Syracuse. Uh, we were in New York, the first game, uh, didn't get to play. Uh, and this is all preseason, but I finally got my debut uh, at Syracuse. And from that game on, I played full 90 for the rest of all Pac-12 and postseason. So um, I had a really successful freshman campaign, uh, but nonetheless, it was a lot of work to get there for sure. Yeah. So kind of get through your freshman year and get a little bit stronger and ready to compete a little bit more going into your sophomore year even. And then that's kind of when things took a turn for you. So I'm just going to let you go for it now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so 
this is the this is the part of my life where I was able I was blessed with the opportunity to find new purpose um you know most college athletes and I'm not speaking for anyone but for me at least uh you know you come into college and you are super focused on your school and your sports especially if you're on a team um and you know like soccer is your die hard passion or you know cross country or track or whatever it may be um and so especially coming off of you know a year that i had my freshman year um having you know a decent amount of success amongst amongst the team i went into summer and i was finally able to go back home um, and kind of take some time off let my body rest and i we were able to schedule a little family reunion up in canada uh and so I was super stoked. We we got to go up to Canada to this kind of like a remote cabin spot that no, that none of our family had been to before, but we just kind of Airbnb'd it for the weekend type of deal. Um, and I got to bring one of my buddies from back home and met all of our family there. And I started noticing just little irritations or you know physical problems uh with my appearance uh for example my eyelid my right eyelid was starting to droop down a little bit look like you know I, when you wake up in the morning and your eyes are still half shut um but only on my right side and i had starting to i'd started to get some headaches and you know I was doing a bunch of stuff. We were swimming and we had kayaks and boats out there and, um, you know, doing a lot of different physical activity. And so I didn't really think much of it. You know, you're just going about your normal day, having a good time. Um, but one of the days I woke up with just a piercing headache and my eye was still looking kind of droopy. And so I went to my mom and I said, Hey, you know, I feel like there's something wrong with, you know, my eyes. I'm, I'm seeing perfectly fine, but, you know, my eyelid is drooping down a little bit and it has been consistently for the last few days. And I've been having these pretty tough headaches. And so both of my parents are physical therapists and um, they're pretty well, well announced in the medical field, but they kind of looked at me and you know, the first time I brought it up, they kind of shrugged it off and said, yeah, take Advil, um, you know, go and sleep more tonight and you'll be fine type of deal. And so I was like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll drink more water. I'll try to get, you know, hydrated and took an Advil. Nothing was happening. Um, and it's the, it's the day before our last day. So our second to last day there. Um, and I'm playing with two of my little cousins and there's a windowsill that opens up into the middle of a staircase. And I was kind of playing with my little cousins and I start jogging up the stairs sideways, looking back at them, not really focusing on what's in front of me. And I ended up lacerating my head on the right side of my head from about the top of my head down to like closer to where my right ear is and from there I was just 
the pain was unbearable. Um, and I, my dad the next morning was, you know, I'll just wash it out and it'll be okay. Like, don't worry about it. And I was like, all right. And so I jumped in the water and cleaned everything out in the shower or whatever it was. And we're on our way back to Reno. And so I get back to Reno and that night I was trying to fall asleep and my head was still just pounding. And I started to get this pain that was basically it would radiate like right behind my eye. I could feel it kind of just like pulsating right behind my eye. And then it would shoot to the back of my head like a super sharp pain. Um, that's really, really hard to, you know, it's hard to explain, but um, the pain was so bad that I had not gotten an ounce of sleep and it's about 4 a.m. and I walk into my mom's room and I said, look, this pain is so bad that I think you either need to take me to the hospital or we need to, you know, call a doctor and try to find some answers for like the pain that I'm feeling. And so at that, at that moment, my mom kind of took it a little bit more seriously, seeing how, you know, it, it had been an ongoing problem now for a little while. And um, so I waited it out until the morning and we went and saw our PCP the next, um, that day. And she looked at me for about 10 minutes. I explained my pain to her and she referred me to go get a stat MRI done at the hospital there in Reno. And so we head to the hospital and I get a MRI done on my head at about seven o'clock. And so it's pretty late uh, in the day and they just say, go home and we'll get your results back, you know, just like your normal MRI. Um, and so I had gone back to the house and then again that night, while you know, they didn't have anybody in there to read the, the report. Um, so I had to kind of wait that night out again with just the same exact amount of pain. I was, you know, sitting there cringing the entire night trying to bear the pain. And my mom calls the hospital at like 5 a.m. and she's yelling, you know, get somebody in there to read my son's MRI. Uh, there's something seriously wrong or else we'll probably, you know, take him there ourselves. And so about two hours later, we get a call back. And the first things that come out of their mouth are, hey, uh, we read your son's MRI. You need to rush him to the ER immediately. And so that's when things really took a change and it started to get uh, a bit scarier because uh, you have a, a doctor who, you know, is reading your MRI just saying, get him to the ER quick. That makes the situation super urgent. Um, and so we get to the ER and I get put in the pediatric ER where I immediately get started with a couple of drugs, vancomycin and unison, uh, both which are antibiotics, which are supposed to treat infection. And so what they were thinking 
none of the doctors really knew exactly what it was, but from the imaging, they, and the, if they had to take a guess, um, you know, they were thinking that it was some sort of brain infection. And so um, with that information, you know, they pumped, they're pumping me with these antibiotics and thankfully they helped me with the pain. Um, you know, the, the second I started getting, you know, those dosages of medicine, uh, the pain started to go away. Uh, but then I was really able to focus a little bit more on the severity of, of what could possibly be going wrong. Um, and, and thankfully throughout this process, my, my best friend, uh, his mom is a nurse at that hospital. And so she was able to kind of, you know, speed things up and, and make sure that, uh, you know, doctors are really putting forth their best foot. Um, and so after a few different head doctors, you know, you have your oncology team, you have your neurologists, uh, you know, a bunch of different doctors that would specialize, you know, in the head or um, with cancer or blood. Um, they all walk in and put in their two cents. And to put it short, with all the doctor's information coming in, the only sturdy things that we got from them was it's possible that it's cancer it's possible that it's an infection and due to the imaging it looks like it has um you know formed a mass or multiple masses that are in your right orbital which is basically where your right eye is and it is like kind of seeping towards the back like towards your brain um, and so after they all had come in, they, they recommended that they would transfer me to Stanford Medical Center, um, which is, you know, one of the more renowned hospitals here on the West Coast or in the United States in general, um, because they weren't exactly sure what to do with me. And so after talking about transportation down there, they wanted to care flight me out. And that seemed a little bit way too over the top for me. And then it was ambulance. And I had personally told them, hey, look, look, like I'll just drive down because you know the medical bills, it's about a seven and a half hour drive all the way down to Stanford. And so I was trying to think about it as rationally as I could. And I said, hey, I can me and my family just drive down there? And they said, well, you wouldn't be admitted right into the Stanford ER because you're not getting care on the way down. And so you would have to wait to get into the ER down at Stanford, which with Stanford being, you know, super busy, it could take however long. Um, and so we ended up taking an ambulance so that I could get admitted right into the ER down at Stanford. And um, my parents, my mom came with me in the ambulance and my dad and my sisters followed uh, behind in our car. And we get down to Stanford at about seven, eight at night. And I get put right into a private sector, um, immediately start getting different teams of doctors coming into the room and, you know, doing just the normal asking questions. Um, 
trying to get a grasp on uh, the situation. And from that night for the next three days, I had a different team of doctors coming in on the hour and they're doing different tests. They're showing me different things on their phone. I'm trying to make out numbers from like a little blot pattern. Um, they're doing eye tests on me to test my, my vision. Um, they're testing me with putting a little micro camera up my nose. Um, you know, all these different unimaginable tests that I never would have known were a thing unless I went through it. And um, finally, they're, they're coming to me and the, the hematologist oncologist group um, came in and said, hey, look, we're pretty sure that, you know, um, this is some sort of cancer. Uh, and I had done a few different MRIs. I think I had done about two MRIs. I had done a CT scan. Um, and then I did a PET scan to see if it was, um, you know, forming any other masses or tumors in the rest of my body. Um, and finally, with the oncologist group, they, uh, the lady Yasmin, she's just the most wonderful lady in the world. She came in and kind of gave my family a deep breath of fresh air. Um, and I'll never forget Yasmin because she basically called um, what I was diagnosed with. And so she comes in, she writes it up on the board. She writes down longer hand cell histiocytosis. Uh, and she goes, hey, with all of your you know, blood tests and um, what I'm seeing, uh, if I had to guess, this is what I think it would be. And so finally we get a piece of information that we can, you know, really hold on to and say, look, okay, this is what we're up against. Um, now, during those first three days, my entire family was, you know, basically just staying in my room. They let us put a little extra bed next to my hospital bed. Um, and my sisters even slept in the car. Uh, and I just had the most amazing support I could ever have. Um, but it was easily the scariest thing that I've ever had to go through in my life. Um, coming from a kid that's, I haven't broken any bones in my body. Um, I've had a few ankle sprains, a couple like minor, minor injuries. Um, you know, I was going into this entire situation scared of needles and the phlebotomist was coming in every 30 minutes. I had my arm poked, you know, like 50 times probably throughout my entire stay there. And so to me, it was, you know, a life changing moment when I, you know, kind of had to sit there and, and accept like, look, you most likely have this blood cancer um, that is in your head. Um, but the only good thing about it was that they had seen it before. So yes, they have seen it, but they haven't seen it that often. Uh, they have a doctor there, a pediatric doctor who specializes in LCH. 
Um, but he had only seen it in kids that were about five years old or younger. And the cancer that those kids would, you know, accumulate would, would happen from, you know, like it would be in their skin, um, on like arms or legs. Uh, and so they hadn't seen it in at what, at the time I was 19 years old and a 19 year old kid, um, and not in the place that it was in, which was, you know, my right orbital. And so from there on out, we had, it, it turned into a waiting game to basically just get into the operating room for my biopsy. Um, and I had to wait. They had me fasting in that hospital bed for four, almost five days, just trying to wait to get into the OR room. Um, but they deemed once, once they had kind of figured out, you know, that what it most likely was, um, my situation and my case at the time was able to settle down a little bit because it wasn't showing that it was rapidly growing, um, or that it was affecting, you know, my, my eyesight or my brain at the time, um, the, the tumor that had formed basically was pushing up against my dura um, and hadn't broken my, my, you know, like the blood brain barrier. Um, and so we took that as this tumor isn't in my brain. So it's not as big of a threat. It hasn't, you know, spiked your vision, uh, changed anything in your vision. And so they took a few more days, got in there for the biopsy, and uh, the the surgery was easy. I mean, I I obviously was under, but um, it didn't take too long. And uh, they basically just cut my right eyelid open. So they cut my eyelid open and went back and tried to remove as much of the tumor as possible, get it in there for testing. And uh, the second that surgery was done, I looked at my doctors and I said, look, I need to be discharged from the hospital, please. I cannot stay in here, you know, any longer. Um, and so they did, they let me go. Um, and I was able to drive back to Reno with my family, eye swollen and everything. And um, I, I stayed, you know, at my house when I got back to Reno for the next few weeks, uh, basically just trying to keep my eye clean and, you know, wait for results to come back. And, uh, you know, the first week passed by and I said, okay, you know, I'm a little bit worried. I'm, we're, we still haven't gotten confirmation that this, you know, um, is 100% the longer hand cell histiocytosis that, um, they brought up in the hospital. Uh, and so we check in and there's still nothing. They're still testing. Um, and another week passes by two weeks, still nothing. And it ended up taking about eight weeks for them to get back to me. Um, about, you know, the confirmation of, of what I had. And so finally, they call me after those eight weeks and say, hey, yeah, we're able to confirm that this is, you know, LCH. 
you know, you do have, you know, that tumor. We tried to remove about 80% of it during the biopsy, um, but we are going to have to look for a further treatment plan. Um, and so that's when, uh, you know, the second leg of the journey kind of started. Uh, by this time, my team had already been in preseason um, and they were kind of looking to start Pac-12 play. And so, you know, I had been completely gone, you know, absent, obviously, not in the locker room, uh, wasn't contacting any of the guys on the team. I had called I had called coach when I was in the hospital um, and let him know the situation uh, just because, you know, kind of have to. Uh, but um, he, I, I uh, told him to, you know, not really say much to the rest of the team because I was worried about them, you know, hearing it from someone else before me. And also they were very focused on, you know, trying to get ready for Pac-12. They had also had a ton of new guys, um, you know, because my freshman year uh, was a different coach than my sophomore year. So our, our head coach now was brand new. Um, he brought in a bunch of new players, a bunch of my old teammates left. Um, you know, the whole dynamic of the team changed. And so I hadn't even met half of the team at this time while I was in the hospital and, you know, going through this. And so finally, when I uh, figured out exactly what it was and what my next steps were, I sent a text in our, in our group chat and, you know, just kind of letting them know, Hey, uh, this is what's been going on. This is why my locker room has been empty. Um, and, you know, I immediately just was bombarded with nothing but love and support. Um, you know, like the greatest feeling in the world is when you have, you know, a whole team on your back, uh, you know, supporting you um, amongst family and friends back in Reno and stuff like that. My support group was just insane. Uh, but going back to, you know, where I was at after the eight weeks of just sitting there and waiting and, and hoping, um, I had gone back for another checkup MRI to see, you know, kind of how the biopsy went uh, and how successful they were in removing, you know, the tumor. And I got some not so pleasant news. They had the, the MRI had shown that either my surgeon didn't fully um, remove what would have been 80% of the tumor or it had grown back within that eight weeks to full size. Um, so they basically, the MRI showed no change in size from the MRI prior to my biopsy. Um, and that's where, you know, things can get a little bit chippy. Then, you know, you're worried about, okay, maybe it you know, grew back really rapidly within that time. Um, and so, you know, then you're looking to speed up the process in a treatment plan. Um, and the problem with that was 
is since the the cancer is rare and the location of it is like you know not normal um we're looking at different types of you know chemotherapy radiation treatments um you know the whole nine yards and we were able to and thank you to my parents who you know really really put their foot down you know kind of on the doctors and, and to make sure that they were bringing something new um and you know putting their best foot forward every time that we met for you know finding a treatment plan they had come across the realization that all these other kids that have had uh, this cancer it's been treated with localized radiation um and the localized radiation on these younger kids has been successful. Um, but the problem with that for me is that I can't do localized radiation with the tumor being um, in a place where there's so many, you know, you have your brain, you have your eyes, all the little intricate eye structures. Um, so many things could go wrong with just completely frying your head, you know, with radiation. Uh, and so what we ended up coming up with was it's a super, it's called cyber knife radiation. Um, it's newer technology and it's super specialized. So like, uh, basically if I could, if I could try to draw out the best picture that I could, you could draw a circle on a piece of paper and just draw a bunch of lines going through it about 2000 different ways. Um, and those lines would be the radiation that would just basically shoot through the tumor, killing off that, that tumor in a really, you know, specific area, um, avoiding, you know, or trying to avoid, uh, super important eye structures and stuff like that. So that, you know, it decreases my, my chances of, you know, going blind or, you know, having vision problems, um, things like that. And so it was <laughs> the, the time taking, uh, those steps to find that treatment plan were super long. Uh, it was not easy, but the treatment itself was, um, it was actually really, really interesting. I, got to have like a mask basically made for me. Um, and they like deadbolt you down to this like turning table that basically like rotates um, almost like 180 degrees. And they like straight jacket you into the table and then they deadbolt your mask into the table so that you can't move your head an inch. Like you, there's no, you know, movement. Um, and then you have these two imaging machines up, up to the right of you and up to the left of you that are, it's basically taking like a live photo of where your tumor's at and sending the message to this um, cyber knife machine, which would have an arm that would swing around and, you know, just kind of get really close to your face, shoot radiation through, move to a different spot, shoot radiation through. And I got to be 100% clothed, didn't have to have like a hospital gown, didn't have to go under, I was just wide awake, normal, the entire treatment. 
um it was really really cool actually um just to kind of see the advances in medical technology um but after that treatment i went home got to go back to got to come back to here uh and to corvallis uh by this time it was about october and uh we had been we're like in the middle of season now uh got to go back see all see all the guys see all my friends um it was really my first taste back to like a normal lifestyle i guess you could say i had this entire summer oh well extended summer into october of just complete panic um worry uh you know just an unsteadiness about your life where you know you're you're sitting there thinking you know the worst that could happen in some of those moments and um whatnot but finally got to get back to corvallis and see the guys and i got to sit on the sidelines for games and at that time in my life and and my career i could have never been more happy like it was the one of the best things of my oregon state career for sure yeah i wasn't playing i didn't get to participate in anything but just to have such a i mean looking back on it um a mild you know cancer diagnosis um was really really one of the greatest things that's like ever happened to me so oh my gosh wow thank you so much for sharing all of that i mean like i knew what you had shared with me to like prepare for this podcast but then just hearing you like tell it your own way is completely different so um I mean, obviously what you had to go through like physically was scary and awful and terrible, but also like mentally, how did all of this kind of take a toll on you as well? Yeah. Um, Beating a cancer diagnosis mentally um, was, was something that, you know, helped me. I like while I was going through it, um, you know, like that, that ambulance ride from Reno all the way down to Stanford. I'm not, you know, I was, I was laying there in the bed, just bawling my eyes out for a solid five, six hours of the ride. You know, you're, you're thinking of the worst. You, you only, the only news that you hear is you have possibly cancer and it's in your head and, you know, like, really your your mind takes a turn for the worst you just immediately start thinking about you know did i do enough while you're here um have i said i love you enough to you know family members to friends um you know like things like that and it's it's it was really really tough um i i had been broken down so much just by that first kind of day um before I had even gotten down to Stanford and was like, you know, in the heart of getting tested for all these different things. And um, it was a challenge, but um, the one thing that, that kind of, you know, gave me the, that light um, 
and like all that darkness that was, you know, kind of just in rotation in my head was, was that no matter what was going to happen, um, I am okay. Like I accepted it. So like, it's really hard to explain, but you know, those, that those first few days, you're like, Holy smokes, this is absolutely God awful. This is, you know, terrible. Um, but then I kind of sat there and I said, you know what, look, if this is, you know, something that is going to be so dangerous to me as if, you know, you want to, you want to think about death or you want to look at it like, Oh, like I have a good chance of dying in this moment. Like you're going to keep on, you know, going in that downward spiral. But I said, look, if it takes me out, I'm pretty much okay with that happening because I have done, you know, what I needed to do um, while I was here. Uh, little things like that, like little, little times in my life that, that, you know, flash back into your mind and, you know, you're thinking, yeah, I did the best possible thing I could have done in that situation. Um, that kind of eased my mind about the entire situation. Um, and then the second that I heard that, LCH was treatable um that's when I really was like okay this isn't you know like that serious um I don't need to worry uh as much as I was when I didn't have any answers um and from that point on it was really just support based um you know once you once you realize that this is something that you have a better chance of beating than uh, you know, like losing the fight to, um, you start to think about other things like, dang, this would have been my, you know, like sophomore season, um, you know, like coming off of a decently strong freshman season. Uh, you, you know, you, you think about all you could have done on the field or, you know, where you would be at, you know, building uh, your degree, um, you know, little things like that. And, um, that was, that was tough as well, but it's the fact that once I figured out, you know, the severity of, of the situation, you're, you're able to kind of sit back and, and just kind of say, Hey, as long as I'm able to get back to that at some point, you know, like this moment in my life is, is more important for like the bigger picture to be to like wake up every day and be grateful you know um for all these things that that i took for granted um you know like my freshman year i you know it's it it makes you really really think hard about you know like how blessed we really are to wake up and you know be able to train every morning like everybody has that has that eight o'clock training or earlier than that six o'clock training whatever it is where you're like you wake up and you're kind of oh man I gotta get to training I gotta you know perform this morning um I've never had a problem with that now since you know it's it's uh it, it was a really tough battle mentally in the beginning but um there's certain there's certain parts of you know going through something like that that really just 
solidify why you do what you do every day um, and and how grateful you should be to be in a position to do what you do every day. Uh, so it, it was it was a learning process for sure. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing that you were able to just have that mindset and stay like so positive and hopeful through such a scary and uncertain situation. But I liked how you kind of like, we're talking about like getting up early for practice and stuff. It's like you, after having going through that experience, you change like, Oh, I have to get up to go to 6am practice. And it's like, no, I get to get up and go to 6am practice. That's, that's incredible. Um, I mean, kind of on a related note to all of that, you this year are part of the Damn Worth It campaign committee with me. And I've mentioned Damn Worth It before in my episode with ISIS. But for those that don't know, it's a mental health awareness campaign that was started a few years ago by two former Oregon State student athletes. And the goal is really to just open the conversation around mental health and and the stigma that often surrounds it, um, specifically within athletics. And so why do you think that was something that you decided that you wanted to get involved with? Um, well, I mean, my buddy Nathan Broughton, when I, you know, kind of saw how, you know, personally he was affected um, and, you know, seeing what he was starting, it was inspiring to me. You know, I looked at him as somebody who, you know, really was able to take something, take a loss and completely flip it on its head um, for the greater good to then, you know, impact thousands of people, you know, uh, for for the better. Uh, And it's something that I, could relate to within even my diagnosis. Uh, You know, I was thankfully funded by Northern Nevada Children's Cancer Foundation, um, who, you know, supports tons of kids who, you know, are going through a cancer diagnosis. And, you know, a lot of people, uh, whether it's, you know, mental illness, or something like, you know, like a cancer diagnosis, it's, it's easy to lose hope. Um, and, you know, to see, to see so many people that are affected by mental health around me. Um, I feel, I felt the need to try to get involved any way possible because, you know, I owe it back to everybody else as well. You know, uh, nobody, nobody deserves to, to suffer. Um, and so getting on the damn worth it team has been, you know, an incredible honor just because I, I want to help as much as possible. So, yeah. So, I mean, I guess just taking in like everything that you've gone through and everything that you've experienced, what, what would you say is like kind of the biggest takeaway or like learning outcome that you've had from everything you've gone through be grateful um you know it's it's all the little challenges in life that um 
really make you a better person. Uh, and that little challenge, that little diagnosis that I'm allowed to say now, um, you know, has, has turned me for the better. Um, and just the, the way that I look at life, uh, the way that I, you know, how hard I love my family, um, how hard I love my friends, how hard I love my teammates. Um, you know, like that, that's probably my, my biggest learning outcome is just being so grateful for, for everything that I have. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, so, I mean, now I guess you come back this year and kind of what would be your se senior season is taken away from you again because of COVID. Obviously, soccer is a fall sport. And so being in the Pac-12 where they've postponed um, fall sports, what kind of impact does that have to you and your team? Like, are you, you guys are still training and hoping to have a season? a season in the spring or what exactly yes yeah so the hope is um for season in the spring as of now uh obviously we have to kind of take it by ear but um you know we're we're training right now no contact still uh hopefully gonna start leaning towards contact training um soon but it's been pretty tough on the team. I think, you know, it's, it's hard to, you know, get told that, you know, your, your season is going to get taken away. And even for, you know, the spring sports and winter sports that had their season stripped right in front of them. Um, you know, it's, it's never easy. Uh, but I think that we're, we're reacting to it really well. I think we're kind of taking that idea and, and using it for, you know, the better, you know, pushing ourselves at training as much as we can, uh, working on things that non, like in training that non-contact, um, you know, prohibits us from doing and, you know, making those areas of our game better. Uh, and, you know, ultimately it's, you know, building a good enough bond on the team that, you know, we can, we can push through this together and, and come out on the other side better, ready to roll in spring. So I think yeah. we're doing all right with it, but it's always tough. Yeah, definitely. Um, and just like for you personally, what does the rest of the year kind of look like? I mean, it's your senior year. You're going to finish up in June. Um, so I'm going to hopefully try to take a fifth year because um, that kind of my sophomore year when I was going through all of that, I kind of, I switched majors, actually. I switched to biohealth science major as I was going through um, that diagnosis. And so I pretty much started that major about halfway through my sophomore year. Um, and even then, you know, I wasn't really eligible to take a lot of the courses. So I almost started it like this last year. Um, but I'll probably try to take another year um, and play for as long as I as I possibly can um, and to really just focus on school and, and finish it out strong so awesome well I can't wait to watch what you do in the future on and off the field um, you're amazing and thank you so much again for coming on today and sharing your 
incredible and inspiring story with us. Um, it really takes a lot to open up about something that personal and of that magnitude. So you're amazing. And thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. It's It's been an honor. Um, and then last thing, where can all of your fans that you're going to have after this follow you on social media? <laughs> um, it's basically, so it's Caleb Etter 17 on everything, on Instagram, Twitter. If you want to add me on Snapchat, whatever it is, Caleb Etter 17. Sweet. Okay, guys, you heard it, heard it here first. Um, make sure to go give Caleb a follow, and that's going to do it for this episode. Um, thank you guys for listening, and I will talk to you all next time. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the Real Athlete Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast and follow along on Instagram at the Real Athlete Pod for updates when new episodes come out. I hope you guys stay safe and healthy and have a great day. I'll talk to you next time.